Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. My youngest daughter comes to me and she says, are you going to finally stop drinking? I said, I've got a couple months now. And she's like, okay, because I want to come live with you. And I was like, okay, well, let's discuss that. I am cool with that, but it can't be one of those things where you're just mad at your mom and you come in here and then you're mad at me, whatever. She And then she laid on me all the things that were happening at that house in the two years that I was not present. It was a real eye-opener. Now it's almost like I need to stay sober, you know? Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. And today we have Mr. Dean Anderson. What a great name. Dean Anderson was born and raised in Boston. He grew up in a family with very little drinking, but at 13, he found alcohol and loved it immediately. His drinking was always intense, but the town and the friends he grew up with normalized the behavior. It wasn't until he got to college that he realized not everyone drank the way he and his friends did. Dean's drinking really spiraled out of control as he moved away from home. By his mid-30s, he was drinking all day and and blacking out several times a day. The consequences began catching up with him. He gave up custody of his children and his house. His job was in peril, and his doctor told him he would be dead in nine months if he continued down the road that he was on. But it wasn't until his daughter needed to leave her living situation and needed him to regain custody that things finally changed. Even if it was three months at a time, he would do what he had to do for her. Today, his life is now dedicated to serving others in and out of the recovery community. Since getting sober, Dean's life has completely turned around and things have transpired in his life beyond his wildest dreams. He also authored and published two books, one on relationships and the other on recovery titled Finding Myself Sober. Dean Anderson was so much fun. Such a great guy, really open-minded, very common story of drinking heavily, high school, college, and then the alcoholism creeping up on him. I love that he was able to show up for his daughter in her time of need, and his sobriety was able to make such a difference in her life. Check out his books on Amazon, Finding Myself Sober by Dean Anderson. Without further ado, I give you Dean. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Dean, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Very exciting. Okay, so tell me a little bit. You're you're so clean and sober now. How long have you been sober? What's your sobriety date? Uh, sobriety date is February 7, 2013, so a little over 10 years. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. So tell me about what it was like growing up. I want to get a picture of what your youth looked like before you found recovery. Yeah, it's a very small town I grew up in about a half an hour south of Boston uh, called Lakeville. And I love it. I still love it to this day. But there wasn't much to do there. But the family environment there was so in the community was so cool that it was involved in sports and everybody knew everybody. And sometimes that's a good thing and a bad thing. But that's what we did. You know, we grew up playing sports, either hockey or baseball or basketball. We had a sport every season. And I had a great family, a great upbringing, none of which my brother or either of my parents were alcoholics, but there's a genetic component to it where on my dad's side, it kind of goes back uh, a few generations I found later. But my dad coaches in baseball. I mean, we, he, they did everything that parents never know what they're doing, but they did a hell of a job and they did a good job doing it. And they were very strict about education and sports. Uh, and they tried to, tried to throw some culture in there too, with like the arts and stuff like that. So he couldn't have asked for a more idyllic childhood. I'm, I, I mean that sincerely. And for 
some reason around the age 13, 14, there wasn't much to do in that town that we just decided, well, let's just, let's just add some alcohol. You know, it'll be a little more fun. And I hung out with a lot of older guys sometimes in the neighborhood. And that's kind of how it started. We just, um, we drank a few times and uh, I liked it from the very beginning. And I don't think it brought a lot of consequences for a while. I got through high school and, and college and all that. And I think somebody would probably label me as an alcoholic during that time, but it was functional and I was seeming uh, to get by. You know, I have no complaints about my childhood. I'm the one who added some uh, excitement and some chaos to it. <laughs> it's interesting, the small town piece. I've heard this before where people say, well, we didn't have anything else to do. So, <laughs> so we drank. And right. I'm wondering with all the sports and all the things you were doing, the things you talked about, why didn't that keep you away from the heavy drinking? I think it kept me away from maybe the drugs or the really heavy drinking because okay. I love sports so much that in high school, I didn't want to, I would do anything it could to not get kicked off the team. And I'd never wanted, and it was pretty loose, the rules there, to be honest, but I never wanted to jeopardize that. Uh, not that I thought I was going to go play for the Red Sox or something, but I, I love the sport and I love soccer. And um, I just didn't want to jeopardize that. And my dad had me working. I swear he had us work at the age of like nine or 10. Like we've always been on a payroll somewhere. And uh, it was good for us because that kept us out of a little bit of trouble too. Right. But I think the best way to describe it is once the alcohol got involved in the mix, those things were never a priority anymore. Uh, my schedule, everything I did revolved around when I was going to drink next. So I would do the right thing and play sports or get decent grades. But any chance I got to go out and buy alcohol and drag everybody else with me, I was going to do it. And I think don't think it really caught up with me until maybe my late 20s. When you went to college at UMass, you had some friends that had comments about the drinking in your town. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I, I find this funny and I shouldn't, but it, I think in the alcoholic world is funny. But I got to UMass in what was like 91. We thought we were pretty normal. Everybody drank in college, right? You know, beyond socially, it was mostly binge drinking, that type of thing. But we went to school with a lot of people from New York, New Jersey, and Philly, and some other areas that were um, out of state. And I could tell you, if it happened once, I wouldn't think much of it. But after it happening five, six, seven, eight times, all of my friends would come up from my hometown and surrounding town. We were a tri-town high school, a Sonic, Freetown, and Lakeville. And we they would come up, all the guys who didn't go to college. They're like, well, I'll come to your college. It'll just be like going to college for me. So they would go up there and stay with us. And so many people said to us, I don't know what's in the water in that town. I don't know what's the matter with all of you, but you freak us out the way you drink, either fight, whatever you're doing. It's It just seems like a tornado that goes through UMass every time they come and visit. And it got to the point where they were coming every weekend. So we never really thought about it. We just thought it was normal because that's what we did. And then by the time enough people said it, uh, we, we probably took pride in it at the time. But looking back on it, I don't know why that town was like that. I, and I find it humorous, but it's not so humorous now because I'm, I'm one of very few that got sober when I did. I've got a, a, a great friend that um, got sober probably first in our town, and she helped me get on my feet after many relapses. And uh, it's starting to have a domino effect in a good way, meaning it's uh, a ripple effect, I'll call it that, that people are starting to get sober and find out they need help. And I'm I'm very grateful that I was one of the original ones because it, it's not like a lot of people where we did in our 20s. For some reason, we were crazy enough bastards where we pulled it as far as we could. And I got sober at 39, but now they're probably getting sober in their late 40s or even early 50s. And it's never too late. If you're still alive, there's a chance. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I spent a bunch of time and dated a guy who grew up in the Berkshires. And, yes, um, that's where UMass is. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so well, also the fact that the kids at UMass thought you guys were, as far as I understand, people drank plenty heavily there. at UMass. So. Yeah, they called it the zoo for a reason. Yeah. 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 So the fact that they thought it was is intense, but I dated a guy who lived in a small town in uh, the Berkshires. And it was very interesting how the culture of some of these small towns that, that I've seen over time is the heavy drinking that goes on in some of these areas is very it's a br alcoholic breeding ground, honestly. <laughs> and and so the people who leave, who end up going, a lot of those people are able, but the, anybody who stayed in the town often ended up with a problem. And I think there's a lot of when you create a community that takes pride in alcoholism, like I, I noticed that and I, I had a community like that too, even in the suburbs where we were like, we're not alcoholics, we're drunks. Alcoholics go to meetings. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love that phrase. <laughs> but, but you, you know, you like you, you stick with your own and you affirm each other's bad behavior, each other's 
would have been the same had I stayed, but I was that breed of person that wanted to get out maybe a few too many skeletons in my closet or was running for myself, however you want to look at it. But, you know, as they say, you know, wherever you go, there you are. And I just kept showing up at every geographic uh, reload and I was acting the same and I just found a new crowd of people to drink with. So it, ne- it never changed. And I don't think the hometown, I'd probably give it a bad rap in that sense, but there's probably still enough of that going on. I haven't lived there in 20 years, but it does. It's a, it's a breeding ground for it and you do stick together. People find it astonishing, including my wife, that like I probably have, without exaggeration, like 50, 75 close friends in that hometown to this day. And I'm 50, you know, but we did stick together. And I don't know what that's about, but it's good and bad. I love it. But uh, most people find it very strange that we're all still thick as thieves. And it's been 40 years since we met each other in grade school. (laughs) Honestly, I love it. I think it's really cool. So I want to highlight some of the consequences that you had along the way. I talk about alcoholism a lot of the time in some of my, you know, kind of corporate presentations using the four stages of cancer. Stage one, you know, stage four alcoholism, what that looks like is very different from stage one alcoholism. You know, I I like in stage four alcoholism to living under a bridge, homeless. It is everything in your life. It's obliterated and taken absolutely everything, right? Stage one and stage two, when we're looking at some of the consequences and some of the things that happen for you, there's a functionality, right? Stage two still has a functionality. Can you talk to me about what it looked like for you kind of in stage two and three before you got sober? Yeah. If you're talking maybe the early 20s, I guess, or coming out of my teen years, I was getting arrested a few times, you know, but the weird thing with me is that I didn't get arrested drunk. You know, they talk about that moment of being (laughs) restless, irritable and discontent. Like if I wasn't drinking, I was causing havoc. Uh, a lot of yeah. people do dumb shit when they're drunk. I, I did do some dumb shit, but it seemed like equal. We were all doing dumb shit in that town. So nobody really even thought it was a consequence. You know, my consequences were probably with my parents because they were trying the best to keep me in line, you know, take away my car, you know, do whatever they needed to do to make sure I didn't kill myself or somebody else. Uh, but when I got into my 20s, I started to have some health issues, not realizing what I was going through. Um, Withdrawal started to feel like panic attacks. And I was in college, I guess my second year, and I was in school and I'd be walking down a hallway. My heart would start pounding so fast that I would pass out. And my poor parents took me to the Leahy Clinic and took me all these places thinking, what is what is wrong with him? And I ne- I mean, to be honest, that's how ignorant I was. I never attributed it to drinking. The only thing that I realized was that when I did drink, especially that rot gut bottom shelf vodka that we were drinking, it got rid of it. But I didn't know enough about alcoholism. If I drank enough, it went away. And for some reason, I didn't connect the two. I just thought, well, I just got to drink more. Fuck it. You know, like if I want, if I don't want to feel like this, but I should have realized that if I went occasionally two or three days without drinking, that it went away as well. It, you know, I was just masking it and doing it over and over and over again. And people were starting to notice it at work on my summer jobs and that type of thing. So I think that was the physical, first physical consequence I had. But then once I got into the work, you know, career life, I was traveling a lot as a salesperson and I didn't really get the consequences outside out of physical again like some reason in sales you can you can go out there and sell you can, and it was a different environment than it was the early i mean mid 90s but you could just get clients loaded you could get away with murder you know doing the stuff you were doing and it didn't seem to pile up I don't know whether it's stage two or stage three, but when I get in my 30s is when it really took a turn because I can't remember the year, but I know the first time I drank in the morning was a whole new ball game. I used to be, I guess, smart enough or strategic enough where I would only buy a pint of vodka and then I would drink everything else on top of it. I always knew vodka would take me to a level that would be bad. And if I bought a handle of it, I was going to drink the whole thing. It's just the way I was built. But for whatever reason, I woke up one morning and there was some vodka left to probably about half a pint. And I had to take my, my girls to school. And it was about, I don't know, 630 in the morning. I was like, well, why the hell not? And I took it. And I, I, know, I thought I found utopia because it killed the hangover. It killed any shakes. It killed anything. And then I thought, you know what? I can I can do this, you know. I can strategically do this where I drink throughout the day and never have the shakes and I'll be perfect because that morning that I was on half a pint of vodka, I loved my job. I loved everything about it. I was on the phone more, I was doing more. Like alcohol always gave me energy. So it was just uh it was a bad start and that probably happened around 30 and I'm amazed I didn't crash and burn in the next 3 years, but it it was off to the races and really bad after that for everybody around me. It's incredible. I love all of the things that that you just said, Dean, about how the, you know, sales masked 
and and you guys were able to get the clients loaded and you made it part of your life. It was part of the lifestyle. You chose a lifestyle that was conducive to what you were doing and that you were functional and the panic attacks that you had. People don't know that your anxiety as it relates to drinking causes more anxiety, even though when you drink it, you feel like it's relieving that anxiety. It's actually creating more anxiety. So often people have physical symptoms, physical problems, and they're not attributing it to their drinking. They think it's a completely separate problem. And then this this idea that pops into your head about drinking in the morning. I so relate to that where it's not like, oh God, I got to drink in the morning now. It's like, oh, you're walking by, you take a swig or whatever. It just pops in your head. Now it's part of something that you're doing and that the what people think is that, okay, now you're incapacitated. Well, actually, no, because it's the medicine that keeps you going. It's it, the, it, alcohol is the solution to the problem. So now you're able to show up more until you're not, but you were still functional at work, all these things. And so many people think that alcoholism looks a certain way, but for you, you were on the phone, you were, you were, you know, until it stopped working. Yeah, there's no there's no turning back once you drink in the morning. It's a whole different ball game at that point where you're doing it every day. And the the strange thing is, no one would believe this unless they're an alcoholic. But what I used to have to go on business trips, I would literally have to detox myself in order to be okay on the road. I knew I was going to drink on the road, but I couldn't do the flights and you know the getting a decent night's sleep and trying to show up to meet the client for the first time you can't just show up bombed like <laughs> sales doesn't work that way right so i would literally have to detox go through the shakes for two or three days and then go on these business trips so the trips ended up fine strangely i didn't drink as much on i drank like a lunatic but it wasn't it was the normal nighttime binge drinking that i used to do when i was younger it's when i would get back home that it was worse i mean there was times where like you said i'm functional but it got so bad that i was drinking and passing out three times a day is the best way to kind of narrow that down. But there was a lot of function in between it. I think more it was more like two times a day for most of the, the work part of it. Then I would pass out again at night, right? And that would just mean that I would drink in the morning. I would go, 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 work, 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 and then pass out at noon for like an hour, wake up, drink immediately again so that I wouldn't have the shakes and I would look okay to my ex-wife when she got home, but still be able to work from about 1.30 to 4.30 or 5 o'clock, right? And, but then there were moments where, you know, I remember my vice, one of our vice presidents calling us and saying, man, you did a hell of a job on that call yesterday. They signed the contracts and we're getting them a fully executed copy. And I, I don't remember talking to a client. I did a whole conference call with a client for a very large deal and I had no recollection of it. And I'm still getting not rewards for it, but they're saying, hey, great job. But that same VP, thank God, came back to me later and is like, hey, man, I'm noticing you do some calls here where you're a little off. And that's when you start losing control of it and you have to figure it out. And luckily, I had some very good people working for me. And I was real close with our CEO. He's a friend of mine. So it doesn't really pertain to my case, but I do find in other people's cases that if you make a company enough money, they're going to turn the cheek to it, right? He really wasn't like that. He was worried about me and concerned too and pissed at the same time, deservedly. When it started getting real bad, I would disappear for a week, you know, and it wasn't that I was gone. (laughs) What I was doing was I was doing all of my work through email so that I never had to converse with a human being. And that's hard to do in sales. You might get away with it more now than you did before, but a lot of it was face-to-face back then. So is it fair to say that you that there were times where you were drunk with people at work or you were under the influence, you know, had oh, alcohol Oh, maybe I should have prefaced system? that. I worked from home. That's why this... That's I worked from home since the year 2000. So all of this okay. that I'm describing, I was completely at home with zero accountability except my ex-wife coming home at five o'clock. So the only... Only two years that I worked in the office was from 98, 2000, and I never drank in the office at all. We drank a lot outside the office together, but I moved to North Carolina, lived there for three years and somehow kind of held it together. But when I got here to Texas is when it really took off because my ex-wife was now working. She went back to school teaching after raising our little girl for the first three years. So once she was out of the house, I've got an empty house and me in a bottle of vodka. Like it's, it, there's no choice. I'm going to drink it, uh, especially once I started doing it in the morning. There was, I, should, I probably should have let you know that part of it, but that's why it was worse because People working from home, I mean, you can get away with so much, it's ridiculous. And and we shouldn't, but that's what we do. If you're performing okay, right? I mean, you're going to get fired if you don't. But by the time I got bad, we had I had been with the company 10 years. So they wanted me to get better. And frankly, I were, I, two guys I grew up with from that same town work with me. Um, they came in after me and they went to our CEO and be like, listen, he 
he's not doing well. Like we're, we're asking you not to fire him. He needs to get some treatment. And then that's how I ended up going to treatment in 2012. So your employer was able to help you get to treatment? Yes. They weren't sure what treatment was all about. They just knew it was an option that I, that I needed. And they asked me uh, if I was willing to do it. But leading up to that, I think the only reason I didn't go to treatment before that was because I thought I would lose my job. So there was an incident on July 4th of 2012 where I drank so much that I apparently texted my ex-wife, we were divorced at that point, and said, I think I went too far. And we were not on good terms. So it was surprising that I did that. But she came by and saw me and I was passed out and they got me to the hospital and I was just below a 0 .40, 0.39 blood alcohol level. And I don't remember any of this. But for, for people for people who don't know, 0 0.08 is the legal limit for driving. Correct. And they say 0.4, you might be in a coma or unconscious, whereas 0.39, the surprising part, this isn't a bragging rights, it's pathetic really, but the doctor had told me later, you were conversing with us fine, weren't slurring your words, weren't any of that. But once they, well, I guess once I found out I was going to stay the night there, I wasn't real happy about it and I was trying to check out, but that's how I got in there. But what they did, which is smart with alcoholics, is that catch them in a vulnerable time because I'm hooked up to tubes and I'm all messed up. And my uh, friend of mine came in and just said, hey, I, I got a place that I think you need to go. Are you willing to go? And they told me, I think my ex-wife was there too. And they just said, hey, uh, we talked to your boss. You're good, man. You can go to treatment. And it was like, I just was able to breathe for a second, you know, and I was like, oh, thank God, you know, and that's why I went. And I finally knew, I, I don't know why so much was held up in my job, but I, I loved what I did and I loved the people there and I didn't want to let them down. So that's why I went. And by the time they got me to the, the treatment center the following day, I was still a 0.25, even though they had pumped me with IVs and everything the next day. It was crazy. I was not good looking either. I was um, 40 pounds heavier, sweating, crying. I was a mess. <laughs> But I'm glad I went. What were some of the consequences leading up to that in terms of what was it like with your kids and your ex-wife? What was going on? Uh, my ex-wife and I had become living two uh, different worlds, so to speak. Like I had my own social world and she was a teacher and we kind of became separated, but living in the same house. But as to my kids, my youngest one, I don't know how she didn't notice any of the, the fighting that might happen after midnight between my ex and me. But she never seemed a major issue in this until I started having bad withdrawals and going through the DTs and that kind of thing. My oldest, I, I you know, I owed her the biggest amends because she was her senior year in high school at my very worst year right leading up to rehab. And I must have just been absolutely not present at all. And she would come home from school and I'd be passed out on the floor somewhere. You know, I always thought I was holding it together because I didn't know she had found me a few times like that. But I had made it to every football game that she was on a drill team type thing and a dance team. And I made it there, but I was not in good shape and I was liquored up. And I was I always tried to be where I was supposed to be, but I couldn't have been very present because I was too liquored up to really perceive the reality that was going on around me. And, and with my ex, I mean, I don't know, we weren't getting along well. And she had said, either you get sober or I'm leaving with the kids. So I wasn't so caught up in her leaving, not to sound rude, but I didn't want to lose my kids. Um, so I got sober for about nine months. And that's one of those things people talk about where you get sober for the wrong reasons. And I got about nine months and I remember going to her and saying, you know what, this is too easy. I must not be an alcoholic. So I actually... <laughs> <laughs> went back out and right. um, we had gotten divorced. And then that really bad incident on July 4th happened. So I went uh, to treatment at that point. What does it feel like to have that moment of clarity? Like, what did it feel like for you in the hospital? And, you know, you finally are, are admitting that you need help. Well, the, there's a slight backdrop to that story where I, I was trying AA. I just didn't feel like it was for me, you know? I think where the reality really set with me is, one, yes, I had a moment of clarity in the hospital to realize, okay, now I'm allowed to go get help. That was my moment of clarity. Like, I wasn't going to lose my job, all that kind of thing. But I went to treatment, and I remember thinking, I don't belong here. I was already seeing the differences rather than the similarities. And I did want to get sober, but I didn't know if it was for the right reasons or not. But I just remember saying to myself, I will never drink like this again to end up back in rehab. Like I was still almost planning the relapse. So my moment of clarity is when I got out of rehab and about five months later, give or take around the holidays, I decided to drink just enough to not go back to rehab. That was the actual ridiculous plan that I had. And there's an there's an amount that's just enough. I want to, you know what? Well, I mean, we gotta... it wasn't measured out, but it was like, yeah, 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 well, yeah. all right, how did I end up in the hospital? Right. That's what I would, you know, let's calculate that. Let's not involve uh, beer, wine and vodka on the same day. You know, whatever the plan was, I don't remember the specifics of it. Uh, yes, but I just want it's astonishing. I'd, like, I'd like to patent and, and create like sure. a bottle of alcohol that's called just 
just enough to not go to rehab and sell. Like that's the new line of alcohol. Yeah, it might it might kill people, but that would sell so quickly into so many people because that's just the amount. Here's here's you could sell it by weight. You could like the weight of the person, height. Oh yeah, there'd be a whole line. You know, this feels like a great idea. It's it's not. It's fucked up that we're planning this, but I think I think if we're alcoholics, morally do it. Yeah, if I could ethically do it, I would probably do it and make a lot of money off it. But (laughs) so obviously that ended badly. I'd say within three weeks, I was off the charts and almost in the hospital again after trying to drink just enough to not go to rehab. Yeah, three weeks is how quickly that took. If my calculations are correct, about three weeks, and that was the moment of clarity because I talked to my boss and I remember him saying to me, can you promise that you won't drink again? I said, no. I said, I can't promise that. I said, I could promise you this. It's that everything I've been taught up to this point, I will do it 100% to see if I can not only stop drinking, but stay stopped. And that was the moment of clarity. And then the realize the realization that, okay, I can't, there isn't an amount that keeps me out of rehab. <laughs> so stupid. But there's just that moment no, where you're like, it's, yeah. It's perfect. That's exactly what the thinking is like. So though. much fun. It's it's just, you are, you know, for those people who are trying to understand us, right? Or listening to the podcast, trying to understand what's going through the heads of their alcoholic loved one. We really think, we are really, swear to God, believe with every fiber. If we sat us down and put us on a lie detector test, we would pass it telling you, we think that this amount is the right amount to not not blow up our lives. I, it's, it's It sounds it's way more fucking ridiculous when you say it like you know, on a podcast. Like I can tell that someone like in a meeting or something and they'd be like, yeah, you know, but to say it out loud, like when we're discussing this, it sounds so stupid. But it's I, I imagine there's a lot of people because I yeah. tested every theory there was to stop drinking. I knew a 12 step program would work. I never really doubted that. I just wanted to do something different. We all want to be unique, right? So, I mean, I remember making an appointment. I'm not making this up. I made an appointment with a hypnotist and I'm driving there and I literally said, what the fuck am I like? What am I doing? Like, this is not about hypnosis. And then my alcoholic brain said, well, if I ask her before I get hypnotized, do I tell her to tell me to stop drinking or to drink responsibly? And if you're asking yourself those two questions, you need to go to rehab again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or <laughs> or somewhere Again. better. I don't I don't know because that's where my thoughts were and th- those were all moments of clarity and I'm grateful for all of them. How do you describe the feeling of drinking against your will? Wow, that's a good, I don't think I've ever been asked that question. I think it's, you realize how powerless you are because to me, I used to describe it to people. I would buy a bottle of vodka and this is when I was trying to drink normal and I would say, okay, I'm going to drink today or whatever. But like the moment I buy that, if I took, you know, a shot out of it or poured it into a glass or whatever, like that bottle is literally without sound screaming at me to come back. And there's absolutely no defense against going and getting it and finishing that bottle, no matter how quickly you fight it. And the problem with people like alcoholics, at least most that I know, we're pretty disciplined people in every other area of our life. So it's pure torture to know that you cannot stop yourself from going and getting the second drink. And you know, it, all, it never made sense when people said it's the first drink that gets you drunk, but it really is because that's the one that sends you into that weird trap that you're either, you're, you're only mentally trapped at that point, then you have that first drink and then all of a sudden you're physically trapped and you're in that circle that or a cycle that never ends. It's absolutely not only infuriating, but it's astonishing if you're fairly successful in most areas of your life and you are an absolute failure when it comes to trying to control that and your will doesn't mean jack shit. And that's disturbing. (laughs) You know, it blows my mind that it's, I'm still this way 10 years later, that if I took that first drink, no way it's it's all bets are off. And I'm going down that rabbit hole again, no matter what I've tested it too many times. Did you ever say, I'm not going to drink today. It's not going to happen. And you go about your life and then somehow you end up somewhere where there's alcohol. And then the next thing you know, you're drunk. It seemed like every day, but that was during the the, the worst of it. But there were times earlier on, like say early thirties where I'm not going to drink today. And I can tell you just from my own experience that there were a few instances where I came to, if you will, I'm not drunk. I'm just in a, you know, I'm supposed to be driving home and I'm in front of the liquor store. And I'm saying, I remember thinking more than one time saying, well, I'm here, you know, like there's no stop button once I'm in the parking lot. That's just like, well, then I'm just like an idiot who pulls up to a liquor store and then pulls away. I'm not a moron, you know? And there was also like six liquor stores because nobody ever, we don't ever want to have a liquor store owner think we're an alcoholic. God forbid there was like five different liquor stores I would go to. Can't have that. And I would end up in front of them all without even the mental 
thought of going there. That's just where I ended up. That was just the part and parcel of like being an alcoholic is you don't realize the lifestyle that you're creating. And you also create all this logic around, well, if I have it, if it's here, I have to drink it or I'll only drink this much and then I'll only drink this much. And then the next thing you know, it's gone. Mine was, you know, in some of my relapses, I would buy something and then I would be like, I have to get rid of this. And so my solution to getting rid of it was to drink it all. So I'm trying to drink all the alcohol out of my house. That was that was the logic that I had. Right. I have, right. I have to drink it all to get it out of the house. Yeah. God forbid you poured it down the drain. You nope. Pour it that down was your not, face. I did not did not see that as an option. I, I I it was like a logic I can't express to you. It makes no sense when you say it out loud. But if you're an alcoholic, you understand how alcoholic thinking is its own set of rules and logic and circumstances. And it becomes very, very convincing when you're in the throes. You'll justify anything, really, you know, especially when you get really bad. And I, I picked up my high school yearbook about four or five years ago. And I was just dumbfounded. Like every signature in there mentions how I started them. Thank you for starting me drinking. Thank you for buying me alcohol. And I was like, fuck. Like, I I mean, I remember it, but I don't. Do you think that there were people at work who would have been surprised to know that you were alcoholic? Do you think that was a surprise to people that you worked with? I think to the, the level that it got to, I think would surprise them because I seemed fairly disciplined in most areas of work. I don't think they realized I was around the clock drinking. They didn't see any reason for me to do that, you know, because the strange thing is, as I always, I told you earlier, like when I was traveling, I would kind of detox myself in order to be able to get through. So if we had like a company Christmas party, I would detox myself leading up to that. And I would often appear to be the least drunk there while everybody else was falling down on themselves because they just decided that night they were going to get fucked up. Whereas with me, it was an everyday thing. I didn't need to get bombed at a company Christmas party, even though I usually did. I looked different. I looked stable, I guess, most of the time, which is kind of crazy. If you were detoxing yourself, did you know, like, when did you know you were an alcoholic? Oh, man. I would, I'd, I'd go again with my early 30s because that's when I started drinking in the morning. Like, and you I don't knew. think I, well, I mean, people said it to me in college, you know, you're an alcoholic because I would drink every day, but like Tuesdays. But I'm like, so what? I'm like, I'm, you know, right. So I'm what? Irish. I'm Irish. What do you care? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm you, you're failing out. You know, fuck you. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so I mean, that's you good. knew. I knew there was a problem, but until I saw some consequences or things that were going to pile up, I didn't see it as an issue. You know what I mean? I probably ruined some relationships. Don't get me wrong. And I've made some amends to people out there to say the least. Um, luckily, they were all cool with me and, you know, I didn't get my head bashed in, but they were um, they were very nice about the amends I made. So I think I ruined a lot of relationships, but I didn't have the consequences of DUIs or anything. I never got a DUI. I don't know how that's possible. It had nothing to do with me being a great drunk driver. I just got lucky, but I didn't have a lot of legal things. I had nothing like that going on. So you will convince yourself really quickly that, ah, I'm all right. I did some dumb shit. Oh, I don't want to look at my text in the morning. Oh shit. Who did I email? But I mean, those aren't consequences. That's just a couple of bad behaviors that you can usually bounce off of and just say, oh man, whatever. We were all drinking last night. Probably shouldn't have sent that email. <laughs> the difference is the the frequency, right? Is uh, the frequency that that happens where someone who over drank and had some bad behavior, that is an anomaly. And then s- someone who where that happens a lot, that's that it's the consequence of the regular behavior that is unacceptable. Yeah. And I think in the workforce, if you're an employer rather than employee and you're looking for people who, you know, might have an issue, if obviously if they're in person, they smell like alcohol, that's a given. But I'm saying for me, the signs that they should have picked up or maybe they did pick up on me is that you're unreachable at weird times of the day. Sometimes when they would call me in the morning, I would sound like I just went to a concert the night before, like my throat was just gone. I, my voice didn't sound right. There are just subtle signs and not that those are subtle. Those are kind of big ones, but you can see some signs that they might have seen in me. Most of mine was I was unreachable at certain times. And I think that's when you're a remote worker, that's kind of a it's kind of a giveaway. You know, why are you doing that? You know, and there could be a few reasons, but it's usually drugs or alcohol. And for me, it was alcohol because I really didn't get into drugs, which is shocking. Your ex-wife, what did she think? And, and what did you tell her? She knew it was bad because she would come home and I would be passed out at those days where I was trying to do it twice a day, you know, try to come to and then drink, you know. So I, I loved the days that she came home and she was drinking because then it meant, oh, man, nobody's looking at me. Right. But she knew how bad it was getting. And I think we were probably destined for divorce at that point anyway. But I think that was she had just had it because 
it was two separate lives anyway. And then I think she was struggling with like prescription medication. But that's the weird thing is that I was so selfish in the sense that I was wrapped up in my own issues that outside of her drinking with me a little from, you know, on certain nights, I didn't see any issues that she had personally. I feel bad about that now. I didn't really notice it, you know, because pills are different. If you're not a drug addict, you're not looking for that behavior. You're looking how often someone has a drink in their hand. And she just got sick of my drinking. But I think uh, once we had split and I got sober, I started noticing the issue she was having. And I wish we had ended on a better note because she might have come to me for help because I think that's how she she passed from that. So tough to say. It's been a tough year on both my girls because uh, she died on January 1st. So, But she was just sick of my shit. Everybody was sick of my shit at that point. But she had to live with me and see me passing out all the time and drinking to the extent that I was. And I, I wasn't really a confrontational drinker, but the way it was described to be by my oldest daughter, because she was old enough to see it, was that she would just come at me about certain things and I was quiet, quiet, quiet. And then at a certain hour, I just, I blew up and it would just be a yelling match from then on. And I think she was just sick of that. Even if she was part of the problem, I was certainly a huge part of it. And I think she was just sick of that. No one wants to live in that world, you know, over and over again, especially when you got kids in the house. Yeah. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, everybody. Ashley here. As many of you know, I got sober at 19 after going to many treatment centers. And years later, when my aunt passed away as a result of her addiction, my father and I and our business partner, Ian Crabb, started a telehealth company in 2010 called Lion Rock Recovery. We started with a PowerPoint and a dream, hoping to help people overcome barriers to treatment like affordability, accessibility, and privacy, which we were able to create in this program that we started. Today, Lion Rock Recovery, our little PowerPoint, treats people all over the world. We have over 200 clinicians, and it's an amazing program. We have an intensive outpatient program that has so many different time tracks to fit into people's schedules and specialties like professionals group, LGBTQIA, trauma, and many, many more. We are able to help people anywhere in the world with any schedule, and all of it can be done privately. This is our dream come true, and Lion Rock Recovery is available to any of you who have family members who are struggling or if you're struggling and you need to talk to somebody. Our admissions team is there around the clock for a free phone call, also a live chat on the website. There's so much there that we've worked so hard to bring to you. Please check it out, lionrockrecovery.com, or you can call the 800 number, 800-258-6550. Thank you so much. Why was just going to AA not working for you? Why did you have to go to treatment? I think because I needed to be physically separated from for 30 days. And, you know, I told you I relapsed five months later, but that separated me from it. And it made me realize that I was just like every other alcoholic and drug addict that was in there. We had the same disease and the same solution if you wanted it. But I'm glad I did it because I learned a lot in there. But I think a 12-step program for me in general is really what I needed to get back to because I'd already tried that before and I just didn't give it a real try. I didn't try all of it. I'm the type of person that I've half-assed everything my whole life, right? So why wouldn't I half-ass a 12-step program, right? And I would do like what the parts that I thought would help me, but I don't need that shit. That was the eye-opener to me that if I was going to go all in, I had to go all in and I had to take it seriously because for me, they talk about sobriety being jails, institutions, or death. And it just happened for me. I, I could have had all three, but it would have been death because the doctor has already been telling me that you got, I'll give you a liver another nine months before you start knocking on cirrhosis door. So what brought you in that he gave you that information? Just like a checkup? No, it was, uh, I can't remember if I was still married or if I was just recently divorced, but it was one of those pass out moments where everybody knew I was getting close to dying or I or I was going to kill myself accidentally somehow because I didn't want to die. I mean, there were times where I didn't want to wake up, but I didn't, I didn't want to die. My ex-wife had brought me to the doctor and it was a family doctor we'd had for many years for us and for, you know, our kids when they got older and all that. And he had just said, man, you, you got to like, now's the time you got to do something. Uh, I've seen a lot of people die from this disease and you're already on borrowed time, if you ask me. And that guy's still my doctor and he in some ways saved my life. So I don't remember how I got there, but my ex-wife was involved in that too. Because even though we didn't get along and we fought about everything, she didn't want me to die, you know? And whether it was because we'd spent that many years together or because she didn't want her kid's father to die, you know what I mean? There was a reason she wanted me to get help. So 
I don't know. I don't know how I ended up there, but that was the weird doctor's appointment where it was a moment of clarity too. Didn't stop me from drinking for another year, but. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right. I mean, God forbid. But you thought about it and that's oh, yeah. what matters. Yes. It was yeah. the thought was planted. Yes. Thank you, doc. Yeah. I think that's something that a lot of people underestimate is that, you know, the thoughts, sometimes the things you say, it gets planted in there, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen right away. Right. And that was definitely my case. I think I was of the stubborn variety. I am, I'm amazed by people who come in to get help now and they get sober for the first time and it clicks and they're sober. And I'm like, dude, what? Like, totally. can you go back out and have a few drinks again? See what happens? You know what Totally. Because I, mean? I think I knew yeah. the 12-step program would work. And if it worked, oh, then I got to stop drinking. You know what I mean? Like, I was almost afraid of it working. Interesting. Dumb as that yeah. sounds. I know. I get it. I get it. Yeah. I think the, the part that sold me a little bit is that people were actually getting sober. And I, at first I was pissed because I'm like, that they're not genuinely happy. They're fucking lying. But they were laughing and having a good time. And it really annoyed me at first. But then I realized, oh my God, that's genuine. But then, you know, a couple months in when I, I, meet, a, I meet an atheist, I meet a Christian, I meet a Buddhist, I meet a, a, a person who believes in the universe or mother nature. I'm like, okay. I get it now. It's just, it's it's not that you have to believe in God. It's that you have to know that you're not him. <laughs> so tell me about your early sobriety. What was, what was it like? Okay. So you get sober or you're already divorced. Yes. Yeah. I've been divorced for about a year and a half at this point. Okay. So you're newly ish divorced. There's custody, all these things. You're newly sober. What is year one of sobriety? Like it starts off with a bang. That's for sure. I, I got sober um, on February 7th, 2013. And I don't think more than a couple months went by before I started getting a little bit crazy. I'm glad it started off the way it did because when I came back that last time within that 12-step program, I had asked somebody to put me in like a service position. I'm like, I need to be accountable and you need to make me accountable. Everything in my upbringing made sure I was I acted and, and acted right and was accountable to somebody else. So please give me that. So I spent the first few months really doing heavy, heavy, heavy service work and trying to help other alcoholics and bringing a message to schools and bringing in speakers to schools, all these kind of things. That was all wonderful. And I had met my current wife about a year before that in the program. And she and I were like best friends. We had no idea we were going to end up together, but it was we hung around together all the time. And she was a huge influence to me because her, she made sobriety look good. And she had a really good story behind her where she you know, went through some crazy things. And she looked happy. She looked content. And she looked like she wanted to be sober, right? And she wanted me to be sober because we were friends. So that was a big positive part. you know. But then within a couple of months, I had kind of, let's call it, given away the custody of my kids. I, I basically, I, I didn't give them away, but I didn't have primary. So they weren't living with me. And I thought, what judge is going to give an alcoholic their kids, right? And by this point, my oldest is 18 anyway. So she's out of the house. But my youngest daughter comes to me and she says, are you going to finally stop drinking? I said, I've got a couple months now. And she's like, okay, because I want to come live with you. And I was like, okay, well, let's discuss that. I am cool with that. But it can't be one of those things where you're just mad at your mom and you come in here and then you're mad at me, whatever. She, and then she laid on me all the things that were happening at that house in the two years that I was not present. It was a real eye opener. Now it's almost like I need to stay sober, you know? And I remember telling Cindy, who's my wife now, I just like, we had started dating by that point when Lauren came to me. And I just said, if you want to run, this is the time to run because this is going to get nuts. This is going to get crazy. Yeah. And she's like, no, I've seen crazy. Well, I'll, I'll stick it out. And um, we did. We went through the whole battle and it was rough going. And I just knew that I had to step in at that point. It was kind of like, if you believe in God, it was one of those things where you're like saying, hey, I know now you don't want to drink, but now you can't. It was an odd scenario because we were at the, we were in front of the judge and she was explaining to the judge that I'm an alcoholic. And it wasn't like I was hiding it. But the weird thing was the judge had actually said, that's fine. And he looked at me and said, I know you're in a program. I know you're not drinking anymore. Can you stay sober? And I said, I'm going to try my best. And then he looked at her and said, and you can't drink either. Not when she's in your presence. And that was one of those moments that really just caused an uproar in our lives because she didn't feel like she had a problem. I don't think she ever thought she had a problem. And after a long battle and some strange things that worked out in my favor, I got custody back and she moved in with me about five, six months later. And at that point, it spiraled, I think, from my ex and she sold the house that was right down the street from me, moved away. And then she had very, very sporadic conversations with my youngest over the next five or six years. She didn't see either of my girls for that amount of time. And the weird thing is she could have reached out to me at any point and we would have got her help as much as we didn't get along. Um, she was a mother of my kids. You know, there was a time where we loved each other and I would have gotten her help. And in fact, my current wife would have got my ex-wife help in a heartbeat for sure. because we're for both sure. in this world. We know what it's like. And I don't really know what caused her to pass, but I have a feeling. And from what I've heard, it's um, probably due to at least partially to this disease that we all 
have fought and some have lost and some have recovered. What does it look like at 10 years sober that's different than one year sober? Our families aren't nuts, you know, because we caused it all, right? But I think she's got two kids who in turn have five grandkids and I've got my two daughters. So as a blended family, I think what happens when you work a 12-step program, those principles that you learn in there, you just start living them and practicing them in every area of your life. And it starts to have a ripple effect on everybody in your family. And though we haven't been perfect and some have struggled with alcohol and drugs, it's so serene now and everybody acts pretty normal and we all love each other and take care of each other and there's no battling amongst us you know and my youngest is struggling a little bit like right now but we know exactly how to help her and she knows that she can trust coming to us when she needs help so i think the biggest change is that the family has restored itself as well as just the two of us who got sober together you know i think that's the biggest thing for us is that we didn't realize how big of an impact we were going to have on our family as good of an impact as we had, as the bad impact we had originally. It's, you know, almost makes me emotional thinking about it because we were all in some crazy places over the last 10 years and it's all come full circle and we're just doing well now and everybody's kind of happy. doesn't mean everybody's day is perfect, but we've all got each other to lean on, you know, and we've got a community of people now and there's people from my hometown that reach out to me now that want to get sober and I doubt anybody was asking me for advice 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know? What has it looked like when you've had to upgrade your sobriety if if you've had to? Meaning, do you do anything differently at 10 years than you did at five years of sobriety? I think we decided, my wife and I, early on that we were if we got sober, we were going to do it sort of mind, body, and spirit in the sense that we needed to go through the steps. We needed to clean up the wreckage of our past, you know, make amends with people, all that kind of stuff. And and, and kind of pick up some kind of prayer and meditation that would keep us at least sane throughout the course of each day. But once we get through that, I'm not one of those guys who works the steps every year. I work them. I worked them once. I worked them very thoroughly. And now I can go back and figure out where I'm taking steps backwards and then work those steps again if I have to. But I stay in this pocket where I just live in steps 10, 11, 12. And it usually keeps me pretty sane. But what I've added over the years is that I wanted other areas of my life to get better. Like I had some major health problems when I got in here, you know, I had liver issues and, and blood pressure issues and everything. So I ended up losing about 35 pounds. We started, we were both athletes when we were growing up. So we ended up working out a ton. And then we decided what were the things that we always wanted to do, but we were too drunk to do them? Or what are the things that, I don't know, we just thought that we wanted to put in our lives and we talked grandiose when we were at the end of a bar, but we just never did that shit. We were going to start incorporating that in our in our lives and that was everything to you know huge hiking trips we go on and we're huge on music I live in Austin so the food and the music here is amazing and we go to concerts like we're 25 years old and as long as we're pretty stable and we've got a good program I'm I'm around alcohol probably way more than I should but I'm healthy enough mentally where it never gets to me and I always look at it like I might run into somebody at that who is looking to get sober. It's weird how that works. And somebody just kind of stumbles across your path. I mean, it is kind of funny when people are drunk and they found out you're sober. Like, they're always like, I think I drink too much. You know, like, and that's not the mm -hmm. time to talk to them, right? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if it plants a seed, they may call you back up after. And I freely give out my number to everybody because they may call. And some of them do. But I think I just wanted every area of my life to be as close to happy as it could be because... I tried getting sober before and I was sober. I was dry as a bone, but I was not happy at all. So we had to incorporate everything that we always wanted to do or that we used to do. And for my wife, that was, she was a kind of a competitive roller skater when she was young. And I didn't know that till we were like two years dating. I was like, why don't you roller skate anymore? She goes, because I'm almost 50. Like, that's ridiculous. And then I went out and bought her a pair. And then I just created a monster because she's on them constantly. But it's just, I don't know. If you're good at certain things, why do you give it up? If you play guitar or something, pick it back up, you know? And those are the things we incorporated because we wanted to not just be these bubble, living in a bubble, sober people. We wanted to do everything that made us excited and made us want to wake up excited every day. That's yeah. the difference. Yeah, oh, I relate to that. I love that, Dean. I relate to that so much. If there's someone out there who's afraid to get help because they're afraid to lose their job, what would you tell them? I would tell them to go to HR. I hate to say that on a, on a very uh, official, like business-like, but I think there are so many programs now compared to the where they were then where you're probably not going to lose your job, but you probably need to go talk to someone and say that you have a problem. And that starts with the honesty. You got to either tell somebody at work that cares enough about you or even go to your boss if it's a small company, which was, mine was, and just level with them and just be like, I am trying so hard. I know I'm still performing fairly well, but you don't know what's going on inside. And I've got to be able to talk to somebody and HR will usually wrap themselves around you and be like, okay, well, this is what we have for options. And I think and I hope that a lot of employers will either read literature about it or realize that if they keep 
that employee that's constantly getting drunk and either maybe they go to treatment once or whatever, if they keep that employee and give them a shot, they might be the best employee that they've ever, ever had. And I'm not saying I'm that, but I've seen it with other people where they've absolutely thrived after getting sober. And for me, it changed how I worked. It changed how I was in sales. It changed how I managed. It changed everything when I got sober. And I thought I was going to be not be able to perform in sales anymore, but it, it didn't. It did quite the opposite. Did you feel a new loyalty to the company because they helped you? I certainly felt a few things. I felt loyalty to our CEO because he gave me a shot. Um, I also felt extreme loyalty to the two guys I grew up with that were working there because one of them in particular, I left in really dire straits. Like I left him with a bunch of responsibilities he shouldn't have had to deal with when I was in rehab. And I felt bad that I had lied to him for a lot of time that had gone by. So I had a lot of loyalty to all of it, but I just wanted to I wanted to do it for me. You know, I wanted to be proud of what I did again. And I wanted to be, see the people around me, see me being successful because I knew sobriety was bringing that to me and nothing else. And I just, I don't know. I just, I wanted to believe in something again. I wanted to believe myself again. And I didn't for so, so long. And nobody knew that, you know? Right. Nobody knew that. Right. Nobody knew it. You wrote some books. Can you tell us where people can find those books and sure. um, and where people might be able to get a hold of you if they want to reach out? Yeah, both of them are available on Amazon. It's pretty easy to find. The first book uh, was my first one, and it was uh, it was fun to write. I, I'm I'm much more heavily involved with the I think with the second one, or have my heart's bigger into that maybe because it's new. But the first one was called Was That a Red Flag? And it was about relationships, and it's about pretty much every mistake I've ever made, and it just shows people what to avoid because I just want people to not stay in a bad relationship. I want them to be able to find the right person, not waste any more time in life, and be with the person they need to be with. But the second book is called Finding Myself Sober. And that one is uh, about the principles that we all learn in a 12-step program that a lot of people don't talk about. There's a principle that's attached to each step. And some people come in and they don't like the steps or they don't like going through the whole process. But as far as the principles go, I don't learn real well in certain situations. Like I don't retain information great from that book that we were reading in order to get through the steps. So what I did, I really latched on to the principles uh, behind each step. And I wrote the book about that because I think if there are people who either don't know about the principles or there are people who don't necessarily like a 12-step program, but believe in those principles because they're the same ones that your parents probably taught you when you were a kid, um, I can literally go through my life now and look at that list of principles and find out which one I really suck at today. And I can do some work behind that and try to better myself in that regard. So this book is about those 12 principles and it's kind of fits in a little bit about my life story, but the hope is that somebody gets that, whether it's it be about overeating, whether it be about sex, whether it be alcohol, drugs, it doesn't matter. Those principles apply to every addiction that you could have. And uh, my hope is to get it in as many hands as possible for people still suffering out there. Well, we will put that in the show notes. Are you on social media somewhere people, if people want to reach out to you directly, is there a place where you are reachable? Yeah, you can easily reach me on Instagram. I think most of my sobriety circle is on Instagram. That's at Dean Anderson 1973 is my handle for that. I mean, you can easily find me on Facebook too, but I think most people are using Instagram more than Facebook. Now it's just us old people that are still using Facebook. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> right. So, and now, you know, I'm on TikTok, but I don't really utilize it much. I probably should because I, I need to get some of the message of that book out, not for sales in particular, for, but like for family members that may be on there and, and decide they want to um, have somebody in their family get sober or they're sober themselves. So that's the easiest. And LinkedIn, you can find me on LinkedIn pretty easily too. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for being here. I loved your story and everything about it are related so much. And um, it, I think that what you're doing out there, all the service work is amazing and being a role model. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. This has been a, a lot of fun. I know it's weird to say that because people don't think talking about being messed up half your life and then get, finally getting sober is fun, but it really is. And I hope people can relate to it. And it's, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I feel like I need to watch Good Will Hunting now. Sure. Well, I got a number. So how about them apples? Huh? <laughs> Unfortunately, that was recorded. So I'm never going to wait for that. That's going to follow us for the rest of our lives. Yep. No, um, I, uh, I, felt, I felt an immediate connection to Dean. I was like, oh, we should hang out with Dean. I'm yeah. Like, that sounds good. Yeah. Dean, Dean's good peeps. He is good peeps. I, you know, this is, we've done, we've done similar stories to this, but it did really 
really feel like it was one of those setting things, right? Like setting was such an important factor. This like coming from the town he came from, it normalized what was going on for him. Working in sales, all the things. I feel like it's one of our one of our standard or one of our recipes for okay, <laughs> Ashley. I just want, Ashley I just is gesturing at me. Okay, I went <laughs> nail on the I meant you nail you hit the nail on the <laughs> That's be, nail on the head. That's nail on the head. <laughs> uh, for anyone who can't see, Ashley was just doing the doing it symbol. <laughs> <laughs> like nail on the. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I did. And then you drove the nail into the nail hole in the wood, apparently, because <laughs> that's oh what God. happened. No oh one has ever God. done that gesture in the history of the world for nail. Don't ask me how to gesture <laughs> eating a banana. It could get real fucking weird. <laughs> I think I don't think I'm ready for ages now. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Remind me to never play charades with you. This is sex. Sex. Blow no, job. nail on the head. <laughs> Fuck. Obviously, what kind of weird. <laughs> I mean, can I be partners with somebody else? Is anybody else? <laughs> no, you got to distract them. <laughs> it's charade subterfuge. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, my stomach hurts. <laughs> I I can't defend it. No, I can't. I mean, I can't either. It's just... <laughs> There's no, de- I guess, your honor, I, the defense rests, like needs to rest. Needs rest, needs rest. The defense you, needs rest. You have a little puppy. You've hit the, the record, nail on the head. For the record, you've hit the nail on the head. You have a little puppy. I got. Which is a baby. I haven't. You got a baby. You said, hey, you know how sometimes I sleep? all the way through the night. Do you know how that how that works? And like, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I don't feel half bad. You know how sometimes that happens? No. Then yes. you said, then you said, yeah, let me get another baby. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted three children. Sure. But mentally, I'm more of a two kind of girl. Sure. Also, I did. I can't do four. And so if I wanted three, I had to be willing to have four. Mm-hmm. And so That's I wasn't true. willing to do that anyway. So that was, we were like, okay, fine. And then we lost our dog. We've always had two dogs. Then we had no dogs. Now we're down to, now we're up to one or maybe 0.5 of a dog. Although he's going to be three dogs as when he's done growing. But he, he does sleep through the night, but he wants a lot of cuddles. He wants a lot of cuddles. And I have to, honestly, the, the hardest part, I have an eight week old puppy, by the way. The hardest part is keeping my children from like playing with him too hard. He gets stressed. And I sat him down and I said, I know my children are stressful. Okay. I got it. But expelling all the fluids in your body is not going to help. <laughs> and it's going to cost us money and people are going to put things in your butt, which they did. What? Not my butt. Oh, I had to take the vet. I had to take. <laughs> So you went to the doctor and then hit the old nail on the you head. No, no, he ended up having to go to the emergency vet on day two because we thought it was, we were afraid it was parvo because fluids were coming out of everywhere for like a long time. And so he, we'd take him in. They do the full PPE. I was like, it's not Ebola, guys. They're literally sticking a thing up his, his rear in the parking lot. I'm holding him. I'm like, you know, oh my God, this puppy's going to die. Like blah, 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 blah. This day two. And then uh, they're like, he doesn't have parvo. And like they do the test, whatever. And they're like, no, he's just really stressed. Do you know how much stress costs Oh, my me? gosh. And I, I had to talk with him. I said, look, buddy, you were stressed at, this, at the house, at a new house, whatever. But like then we came here and they put things in your butt. <laughs> and then I paid them. <laughs> so now we're all stressed. I think you made it worse. And I we talked about coping skills, about like taking breaks and naps. And telling my children, like holding a boundary, but so um, six hundred dollars later, here we are. Which brings me right back to Dean. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Dean. The truth is, we loved your episode. We really we did. did, but we're just in a mood right now, and I'm yes. sorry. 
I feel that you appreciate all the twists and turns that this one has taken because you're a cool guy and you got a good sense of humor. Well, and his his episode speaks for itself. Like our recap, less than helpful. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> we just need to shut up and then yeah. tell a weird story yeah. and then get confused and then, yeah, come yeah. on back. To nail on the head. But to recap, Dean is great. We love him. We're inspired by his story. It makes so much sense why the sales community would be particularly afflicted. It makes so much sense that when you're setting tells you you're normal, you feel like you're normal. It makes so much sense that, you know, this can go on a long time in those settings. And we're thrilled that Dean found a way out of it, that he used the motivation of his daughter to do what he needed to do, to show up big time and do take the steps he needed to take. Dean, big fans of yours. That's all I have to say. It's the truth. We're rooting for you this week, as we always are. Always. If you're in sales and you're curious about uh, how to make this work, I bet if you reached out to Dean on social media, he might be willing to talk to you. But also, we did an episode about how you get sober in sales. If you want to look back in season four, you can find that. It has a 100% consumption rate. That means that everybody who turned that episode on listened all the way to the very end, which means that there's some compelling stuff in there. So if you're ever so inclined, it's a good place to go check things out. Ashley, anything you want to leave the people with this week? Yes. If you are struggling with addiction or alcoholism and you are working and you you are worried about losing your job and you need flexibility and all of that, I highly recommend that you check out lionrockrecovery.com. I know that's kind of convenient, but it's a perfect option for situations like Dean's and maybe it is for yours as well. So hope you have a wonderful week and we will see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.